Ring ring. Hello. Presents from here to equality, reparations for Black Americans in the 21st century, by William A. Darity Jr. and A. Kirsten Mullen, narrated by J. D. Jackson. Introduction. Standing at the crossroads. In order to see where we are going, we not only must see where we have been, but we must also understand. Where we have been, Ella Baker. The world has never seen any people turned loose to such destitution as were the four million slaves of the South. They were free without roofs to cover them, or bread to eat, or land to cultivate, and as a consequence, died in such numbers as to awaken the hope of their enemies that they would soon disappear. Frederick Douglass, celebrating the past. Anticipating the future, racism and discrimination have perpetually crippled black economic opportunities. At several historic moments, the trajectory of racial inequality could have been altered dramatically, but at each juncture, the road chosen did not lead to a just and fair America. The formation of the republic provided a critical moment when blacks might have been granted freedom and admitted to full citizenship. The Civil War and the Reconstruction era each offered openings to produce a true democracy, thoroughly inclusive of Black Americans. Had the New Deal project and the GI Bill fully included Blacks, the nation would have widened the window of opportunity to achieve an equitable future. Passage of civil rights legislation in the 1960s might have unlocked the door for America to eradicate racism. However. At none of these forks was the path to full justice taken. From Here to Equality is a book primarily about the economic divide between Black and White Americans, how it came to be, and how it can be eliminated. Specifically, we contend a suitably designed program of reparations can close the divide. Black reparations can place America squarely on the path to racial equality. Reparations programs have been used strategically in the United States and throughout the world to provide redress for grievous injustices. These include the U.S. government's provision of reparations for Japanese Americans unjustly incarcerated, interned during World War II, the German government's provision of reparations for victims of the Nazi Holocaust. And the Canadian government's provision of compensation to indigenous peoples who were removed forcibly from their families and confined to Christian church-run Indian residential schools, reversing the effects of slavery for newly emancipated human chattel, was the goal of several plans put into action during and immediately following the Civil War. One of the country's earliest efforts to dramatically alter blacks' economic condition. Was the federal government's post-Civil War plan to give at least 40 acres of abandoned and confiscated land, as well as a mule, to each formerly enslaved family of four, or 10 acres per person? While some maintain that this planned payment of land and a work animal to newly freed men and women in the 19th century is a figment of the Black imagination. Historical records confirm that the promise of reparations was not a myth. 
it was inscribed in federal legislation. In fact, the allocation activated in 1865 of 40 acres for formerly enslaved Africans was at least the second such measure the federal government had developed to assign land to the former chattel. The idea that reparations could be an effective method of addressing the effects of slavery and white supremacy has a long history, cycling in and out of popular discourse and the national policy arena. Reparations are as timely today as they were in the 1860s. The ultimate goal of From Here to Equality is to help rejuvenate discussions about and to promote reparations for African Americans. As the final chapter of this book will show, there are several mechanisms for reversing gross inequalities between blacks and whites that overcome the frequent reflexive reaction that this is impractical or infeasible. Real equality is a worthy goal, and it can be achieved. Reparations are a program of acknowledgement, redress, and closure for a grievous injustice. Where African Americans are concerned, the grievous injustices that make the case for reparations include slavery, legal segregation, Jim Crow, and ongoing discrimination and stigmatization. ARC, the acronym that stands for Acknowledgement, Redress, and Closure, characterizes the three essential elements of the reparations program that we are advocating. Acknowledgement, redress, and closure are components of any effective reparations project. Acknowledgement involves recognition and admission of the wrong by the perpetrators or beneficiaries of the injustice. For African Americans, this means the receipt of a formal apology and a commitment for redress on the part of the American people as a whole, a national act of declaration that a great wrong has been committed. But beyond an apology, acknowledgement requires those who benefited from the exercise of the atrocities to recognize the advantages they gained and commit themselves to the cause of redress. Redress potentially can take two forms, not necessarily mutually exclusive, restitution or atonement. Restitution is the restoration of survivors to their condition before the injustice occurred, or to a condition they might have attained had the injustice not taken place. Of course, it is impossible to restore those who were enslaved to a condition preceding their enslavement, not only because those who were enslaved are now deceased, but also because many thousands were born into slavery. But it is possible to move their descendants toward a more equitable position commensurate with the status they would have attained in the absence of the injustice or injustices. Atonement, as an alternative form of redress, occurs when perpetrators or beneficiaries meet conditions of forgiveness that are acceptable to the victims. Achieving these elements of a reparations program requires good-faith negotiations between those who were wronged and the wrongdoers. There is no existing mechanism for establishing when African Americans collectively will have reached an agreement that sufficient steps have been taken to justify forgiveness. Consequently, atonement is difficult to accomplish. That is why in our proposal, we treat restitution as the appropriate form of redress. We have clear metrics for determining when restitution has been achieved that we do not have for establishing the same for atonement.
Specifically, restitution for African Americans would eliminate racial disparities in wealth, income, education, health, sentencing and incarceration, political participation, and subsequent opportunities to engage in American political and social life. It will require not only an endeavor to compensate for past repression and exploitation, but also an endeavor to offset stubborn existing obstacles to full black participation in American political and social life. Reparations demonstrably would be effective if an improved position for blacks is associated with sharp and enduring reductions in racial disparities, particularly economic disparities like racial wealth inequality and corresponding sharp and enduring improvements in black well-being. Closure involves mutual reconciliation between African Americans and the beneficiaries of slavery, legal segregation, and ongoing discrimination toward blacks. Whites and blacks would come to terms over the past, confront the present, and unite to create a new and transformed United States of America. Once the reparations program is executed and racial inequality eliminated, African Americans would make no further claims for race-specific policies on their behalf from the American government, on the assumption that no new race-specific injustices are inflicted upon them. A central theme of From Here to Equality is the sustained American failure to recognize the pernicious impact of white supremacy and the sustained American failure to adopt national policies that reverse the effects of white supremacy. At each point that the nation stood at a critical crossroads with respect to its racial future, it chose the wrong fork. The first two chapters comprise part one of From Here to Equality. In chapter one, we examine the historical trajectory of the black reparations movement in the United States demonstrating the consistent denial of efforts to establish a comprehensive program of compensation for black America. Chapter 2 is devoted to a systematic analysis of the comparative current status of blacks vis-a-vis -vis whites in the United States. We give particular attention to the racial gulf in wealth accumulation, because wealth, or net worth, is the most powerful indicator of the intergenerational effects of white supremacy on black economic well-being. In the same chapter, we also present evidence showing that many Americans are simply wrong about the magnitude and the causes of racial wealth disparities. Part two of the book is devoted to an analysis of the effects of the American system of slavery on the nation's economic and political development. The third chapter identifies the beneficiaries of slavery both in the near and longer terms. We examine the key role that slavery played in American economic development in both the North and the South. As we stress throughout the book, the case for justice must include identification of not only the perpetrators of racial harm, but also those who gained from the harm, whether or not they inflicted it. Chapter 4 examines the first major fork in the road for America— the possibility of ending slavery and producing black citizenship at the founding of the new nation. The period of struggle for independence from Britain was rich with possibilities, possibilities that would have been engendered by ending slavery at the origin of the United States, but were summarily forsaken. In Part 3, we consider alternative routes not taken during the period of the Civil War. 
Chapter 5 is an in-depth exploration of the rejected option of compensated emancipation, an option that would have prevented or attenuated the war, while also ending black enslavement. Chapter 6 details anti-black atrocities that took place during the war. One may be surprised to learn the extent to which even the Union Army was unwilling to incorporate blacks who had joined their ranks as equals. Part 4 investigates the lost opportunities for constructing citizenship for the formerly enslaved in the aftermath of the war. Chapter 7 treats a variety of experiments conducted before, during, and after the Civil War to establish communities of freedmen predicated on creating opportunities for full participation in American life. Chapter 8 describes the ferocious post-war conflict over the Radical Republicans' plan for Reconstruction, which included the provision of at least 40 acres of land for freedmen and full political participation for black men. The failure to take the Radicals' path set the stage for the subsequent 150 years of black degradation. Chapter 9 records the destruction of the dreams and ambitions embodied in Reconstruction and the restoration of a regime of white rule in the post-Confederate South. Part 5 of From Here to Equality advances a bill of particulars for the outrages and damages wreaked upon black Americans during the century and a half since the Civil War. Chapter 10 focuses on the abuses of the Jim Crow era, the period of legal segregation in America, while Chapter 11 is devoted to the insufficiency of the Civil Rights era to produce racial equality in the United States. Chapter 10 pivots on the sequence of white massacres that resulted in the annihilation of black lives and property. Chapter 11 centers on the prolonged devaluation of black life throughout the post-civil rights era via discrimination and violence. The final part of the book consists of two chapters and provides a springboard to the design and implementation of a plan for black reparations, Chapter 12 constitutes a systematic response to reparations critics, while Chapter 13 outlines the potential structure of an actual reparations program. These last two chapters, taken together, supply a systematic response to customary logistical concerns raised about black reparations, with the final chapter offering a detailed description of how best to enact them. From Here to Equality draws a thick line from the nation's origins to the present. The case we build in this book is based on all three tiers or phases of injustice, slavery, American apartheid, Jim Crow, and the combined effects of present-day discrimination and the ongoing deprecation of black lives. Most advocates of black reparations have focused exclusively on the injustice of slavery as the basis for redress. Law professor Boris Bitker argued that the case for black reparations should center solely on the harms of legalized segregation, while Roy L. Brooks, also a legal scholar, has argued that the foundation for black reparations is the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. We submit that the Bill of Particulars for Black Reparations also must include contemporary ongoing injustices, Injustices resulting in barriers and penalties for the black descendants of persons enslaved in the United States.
Sociologist Joe Feagan catalogs the continuing injuries inflicted on black Americans, including wage penalties, physical and psycho-emotional health wounds, and community and institutional damages. Despite the Brown v. Board of Education decision in 1954, a wave of federal legislation in the 1960s and 1970s intended to eliminate legal apartheid in the United States and the enactment of anti-discrimination laws, blacks continue to bear the weight of American racism. That burden is manifest in labor market discrimination, grossly attenuated wealth, confinement to neighborhoods with lower levels of amenities and safety, disproportionate exposure to inferior schooling, significantly greater danger in encounters with the police and the criminal justice system writ large, and a general social disdain for the value of black people's lives. The legal apparatus created by the Civil Rights Revolution does little to address the complex web of harms imposed upon black Americans today. Taken individually, any one of these three tiers of injustice, slavery, the regime of legal segregation and subordination, and current discrimination, makes a powerful case for black reparations. Taken collectively, they are impossible to ignore.
Hi everyone, my name is Ariana Stanberry. I am a Jamaican black female alto saxophonist originally from Jamaica and currently residing in Connecticut, USA. I'm here performing for you today as part of the Berkeley Anywhere concert series. This series features different artists every single Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, so be sure to be tuned in for the next episode. The first song you heard me play was Versace on the Floor by Bruno Mars. The second song you'll hear me sing and play is called Because of Who You Are. It is a gospel song originally performed by Vicky Yohi. Enjoy. Uh-huh. 
Part 1 1. A Political History of America's Black Reparations Movement The Civil War of 1861-65 to 65 ended slavery. It left us free, but it also left us homeless, penniless, ignorant, nameless, and friendless. Russia's liberated serf was given three acres of land and agricultural implements with which to begin his career of liberty and independence. But to us no foot of land nor implement was given. We were turned loose to starvation, destitution, and death. So desperate was our condition that some of our statesmen declared it useless to try to save us by legislation as we were doomed to extinction. Ida B. Wells, Class Legislation Black reparations are damages for America's broken contract with black people. Mirsa Baradaran, Black Capitalism Can't Fix the Racial Wealth Gap, Black Agenda Report. Just as enslaved Africans were the first abolitionists, liberating themselves and their families whenever possible, so too were black Americans the nation's earliest architects of reparations. American reparations advocates were motivated by the federal government's failure to fulfill its promise of an endowment of 40 acres and a mule to the formerly enslaved made on multiple occasions toward the end of the Civil War and in the years immediately following 1865. When General William T. Sherman and Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton asked Reverend Garrison Frazier, a native of Granville County, North Carolina, what he and other freedmen would need to sustain themselves after the Civil War wound down, Reverend Frazier replied, Land. Sherman and Stanton had come to Savannah, Georgia, in January 1865, to query black leaders about their vision of the way forward, as President Lincoln sought to transform the war-ravaged country. Twenty black leaders, also members of the clergy, had selected the reverend as their spokesman, and he explained, The way we can best take care of ourselves is to have land and turn and till it by our own labor. We want to be placed on land until we are able to buy it and make it our own. The radical wing of the Republican Party, led by Thaddeus Stevens, Charles Sumner, and John C. Fremont, advocated that lands abandoned by and confiscated from the former Confederates be allotted to freedmen. Black abolitionist Frederick Douglass, uncharacteristically, initially was unenthusiastic about the free land for black strategy. As early as 1853, in a letter to Harriet Beecher Stowe, Douglas complained that once freed, former slaves would not take eagerly to agriculture unless coerced. He also argued that the very nature of slavery robbed freedmen of sufficient self-reliance to be successful as independent farmers. However, Douglas later came to regret this break with the radical Republicans. By 1876, before the Republican National Convention, Douglas observed that the ongoing plight of the ex-slaves was due in large measure to the failure to grant them land. He favorably invoked the Russian land reform that followed the emancipation of the serfs. When the Russian serfs had their chains broken and were given their liberty, the government of Russia, I, the despotic government of Russia, 
gave to those poor emancipated serfs a few acres of land on which they could live and earn their bread. But when you turned us loose, you gave us no acres. You turned us loose to the sky, to the storm, to the whirlwind, and worst of all, you turned us loose to the wrath of our infuriated masters. Subsequently, Douglas repeated time and again the phrase the serfs of Russia were given three acres of land, contrasting this with nothing being given to formerly enslaved blacks in America. On August 1, 1880, in a speech given in Elmira, New York, at a celebration of West Indian slave emancipation, Douglas observed, He who can say to his fellow man, You shall serve me or starve, is a master, and his subject is a slave. This was seen and felt by Thaddeus Stevens, Charles Sumner, and leading Republican stalwarts, and had their counsels prevailed, the terrible evils from which we now suffer would have been averted. The Negro today would not be on his knees, as he is, abjectly supplicating the old master class to give him leave to toil, nor would he be leaving the South as from a doomed city and seeking a home in the uncongenial North, but tilling his native soil in comparative independence. Still later, in a September 24, 1883 speech before the National Convention of Colored Men in Louisville, Kentucky, he repeated the same themes, saying explicitly that the ongoing poverty and wretchedness of blacks across the South would have been attenuated had the nation heeded the radical Republicans' call for land distribution to freedmen. The nation's descent into post-slavery turpitude was aggravated by going against the voice of Stevens, Sumner, and Wade, and other far-seeing statesmen. One of the earliest known reparations champions, Callie D. Guy House, born in slavery about 1861 in Rutherford County, Tennessee, was a widow with five children, making her living as a self-employed laundry worker and clothes maker. She took up the cause of the ex-slaves after seeing a copy of the pamphlet, Vaughn's Freedman's Pension Bill, a plea for American freedmen which began circulating in black communities in central Tennessee around 1890. Determined to improve the economic independence of the ex-slaves, Callie House initially joined forces with Walter R. Vaughn, the publisher of the pamphlet. Vaughn was a white Nebraska Democrat and a Southerner whose own lobbying efforts on behalf of the formerly enslaved dated to 1870. A former mayor of Council Bluffs, Iowa, and the son of a slaveholder, he had proposed an ex-slave pension bill in 1890. Eventually, House broke with Vaughn both on principle and tactics. Vaughn argued that the measure should be called the Southern Tax Relief Bill and promoted it for benefit of stimulating the southern states' economies. Since whites owned the majority of business enterprises, he reasoned blacks would have to purchase goods and services from them and would thereby generate economic growth throughout the South. He made a tidy sum from the sale of the brochures, which sold for one dollar. Eventually, Vaughn grossed $100,000 against expenses, which included lobbying, printing, and marketing, of about $20,000. In 1898, House banded with Isaiah Dickerson, a minister and educator, to charter the Grassroots National Ex-Slave Mutual Relief Bounty and Pension Association 
MRBP, in Nashville, Tennessee. Dickerson served as the general manager, and House became the assistant secretary and national promoter of the new organization. Their mission was fourfold. One, identify ex-slaves and add their names to the petition for a pension. Two, lobby Congress to provide pensions for the nation's estimated 1.9 million ex-slaves, 21% of all African Americans by 1899. Three, start local chapters and provide members with financial assistance when they became incapacitated by illness. And four, provide a burial assistance payment when the member died. The MRBP modeled its pension plan for the formerly enslaved on the Civil War program for disabled veterans and families of deceased veterans approved by Congress on July 14, 1862. If the federal government could compensate elderly disabled veterans for their contributions to the war effort, the organizers reasoned, why not also provide support for the aged ex-slaves who had contributed so much to the growth and development of the country over their lifetimes as coerced and unpaid laborers? One of House's first initiatives was to embark on a two-year lecture circuit to build local chapters and create the infrastructure necessary to connect them to the burgeoning national organization. Her impact was immediate and profound. A phenomenal recruiter, House signed up at least 34,000 members during those two years. By 1916, the MRBP's membership was estimated to be around 300,000. The dues the organization collected from its members made it possible for the staff to pursue its goals. When Reverend Dickerson died in 1909, House assumed the top leadership position. In 1915, the association went on to challenge the federal government in a lawsuit filed on behalf of ex-slaves. The lawsuit asserted that the U.S. Treasury Department owed the freedmen $68 million dollars, the amount it had collected from the sale of slave-grown and slave-harvested cotton that had been confiscated from Confederates toward the end of and immediately after the Civil War. The claim was denied. The Association's mission and its bulging membership roles drew the attention of a variety of federal officials and departments. For some in the U.S. government, the Association's steadfast belief that involuntary servitude was a human rights violation and that remedies were owed the former slaves was seen as a threat. In 1916, U.S. Postmaster General A.S. Burleson sought indictments against leaders of the association, claiming that they had obtained money from the formerly enslaved by fraudulent circulars proclaiming that pensions and reparations were forthcoming. House was convicted and served time in the penitentiary in Jefferson City, Missouri from November 1917 to August 1918. While the federal government succeeded in shutting down House's organization, her followers continued to advance the campaign. Many of them joined Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association. During the 20th century, there were numerous indictments in which black claims to reparations seemed justified. Chicago was one of 25 cities that erupted in racial violence during the summer of 1919, which became known as Red Summer. Black veterans returning from World War I deployments in Europe and across the globe 
were frustrated to find that discrimination and the routine violent attacks from whites contradicted their status as full citizens in the United States. To compound matters, well-remunerated employment commensurate with the skills the men had honed during their years in the service was in short supply. On July 27, 1919, a black teenager who was swimming with friends in Lake Michigan drifted across the color barrier and was stoned to death by a group of white men. The police officer who arrived on the scene refused to arrest the assailants identified by eyewitnesses. The subsequent uproar led to a week of rioting. Ultimately, 25 blacks and 13 whites were killed, 537 people were injured, some of them severely, and over 1,000 black families lost their homes after they were torched by rioters. Shaken by the carnage and rancor, Illinois Governor Frank Orrin Loudon took an unprecedented step and created the Chicago Commission on Race Relations. For the first time since Reconstruction, a governmental agency would investigate white violence against blacks and the social and economic condition of blacks. Detailed accounts of the murders, including the death of Oscar Dozier, a black laborer at Great Western Smelting and Refining Works, are described in the 669-page publication section titled Epitome of Facts and Riot Deaths. Dozier, unadvisedly, left work before adequate protection could be furnished and was attacked by a mob of 500 to 1,000 white men at 39th Street and Parnell Avenue who stoned him and cut a two-inch stab wound over his heart. No proposal for compensation for the black victims of the riot was advanced by the commission. Black nationalist Queen Mother Audley Moore, who advocated restitution for African Americans as early as 1950, was a movement pioneer with connections to the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Born in 1898 in New Iberia, Louisiana, at about the same time as the founding of the MRBP, Moore launched the Committee for Reparations for Descendants of U.S. Slaves. One of her grandfathers had been lynched. One of her great-grandfathers, a white slaveholder, had also owned one of her grandmothers. In 1957 and 1959, she formally appealed to the United Nations for reparations for African Americans. Moore's interactions with the U.N. were forerunners of that global organization's working group of experts on people of African descent, which was established in 2002 and released its own call for reparations for African Americans in 2016. Moore also was a key member of the Republic of New Africa, RNA, an organization formed in 1968 that issued a claim on the territory of the southeastern United States as a location for the formation of a separate majority black nation. The foundation of the organization's claim was the broken promise of land for ex-slaves embodied in 40 acres and a mule. The RNA sought both land and sovereignty. Moore served as the Minister of Health and Welfare in the RNA's shadow government. The RNA's first president was Robert Williams, leader of North Carolina's chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, and a committed advocate of armed black self-defense. Williams' position influenced the Black Panthers' subsequent adoption of a principle of the use of arms for the purpose of group protection from white terror. 
For Williams and the Panthers, white violence had to be met by black violence. In 1963, Malcolm X, while still a minister with the Nation of Islam, issued a call for black reparations at Michigan State University. He demanded, foreshadowing the ambitions of the RNA, that the U.S. government grant land and resources that would enable black Americans to establish a separate territory under black control. He, Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the Nation of Islam, says that in this section of the United States, that will be set aside for black people, that the government should give us everything we need to start our own civilization. They should give us everything we need to exist for the next 25 years. And when you stop and consider the... You shouldn't be shocked. You give Latin America $20 billion and they never fought for this country. They never worked for this country. You send billions of dollars to Poland and to Hungary. They're communist countries. They never contributed anything here. This is what you should realize. The greatest contribution to this country was that which was contributed by the black man. If I take the wages... Just a moment. If I take the wages of everyone here... Individually, it means nothing. But collectively, all of the earning power or wages that you earned in one week would make me wealthy. And if I could collect it for a year, I'd be rich beyond dreams. Now, when you see this, and then you stop and consider the wages that were kept back from millions of black people, not for one year, but for 310 years, you'll see how this country got so rich so fast and what made the economy as strong as it is today. And all that, and all of that slave labor that was amassed in unpaid wages, is due someone today. In May 1969, a decade after Queen Mother Audley Moore's historic petition to the UN, militant activist James Foreman interrupted the Sunday services at Riverside Church in New York City to issue the Black Manifesto. The manifesto called for $500 million in reparations from white Americans to be paid by churches and synagogues for the crimes religious institutions had visited upon black Americans in the United States. Foreman, in conjunction with the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, had previously presented the manifesto at the National Black Economic Development Conference a month earlier in Detroit. The Black Manifesto resulted in donations of $500,000 in funds, exactly 0.1% of the amount initially demanded. The funds helped establish several organizations intended to support black political and economic advance. These included a black-owned bank, Black Star Publications, four television networks, and the Black Economic Research Center. The Black Economic Research Center, a nonprofit entity headed by Robert Brown, was a black economic policy think tank. Its mission was to collect data on black economic wealth and income, generate proposals aimed at improving black Americans' economic position, and assist public and private agencies working toward similar goals. The Ford Foundation was a contributor throughout the 1970s, but without further financial support, operations ended in 1980. Today, there are faith-based organizations that have expressed ongoing commitments to the reparations project in the spirit of their ministry. These include the Interfaith Fellowship of Reconciliation, based in the suburbs of New York City, 
and the Auburn Seminary, located in upstate New York. There was a surge in the reparations movement in the mid-1980s, and it grew steadily until 2001. Black auteur Spike Lee launched his film production company in Brooklyn, New York, in 1985, and called it 40 Acres and a Mule. In 1987, a new group calling for the repair, healing, and restoration of blacks injured by slavery and American apartheid geared up for a major offensive. Led by Ajoa Ayatoro and the late Imari Obadele, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America, in COBRA, was founded by the National Conference of Black Lawyers, the New African People's Organization, and the RNA for the sole purpose of obtaining reparations for African descendants in the United States. Dorothy Benton Lewis and Irving Davis also were instrumental figures in the development of INCOBRA. INCOBRA hosted a series of meetings and established chapters across the country, as well as in London and Ghana. Then in 1989, U.S. Representative John Conyers, Democrat, Michigan, with assistance from INCOBRA, introduced H.R. 40 in the 112th Congress, a bill to establish the commission to study and develop reparation proposals for African Americans. The commission was to be tasked with conducting research and determining whether any form of compensation to the descendants of African slaves is warranted. Conyers introduced the bill at the start of every Congress and planned to do so until it was passed into law. As we go to press with Conyers' exit from Congress in December 2017 amid sexual harassment accusations, Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, Democrat, Texas, is now the new sponsor of H.R. 40. Senator Cory Booker, Democrat, New Jersey, is the lead sponsor for the Senate version of the bill, S. 1083. But H.R. 40 never has reached the floor of Congress for a vote. The public visibility of the act has been maintained thanks to Conyers' passion for the cause of reparative justice. Many people want to leave slavery in the past. They contend that slavery happened so long ago that it is hurtful and divisive to bring it up now, he wrote in 2013. But the concept of reparations is not a foreign idea to either the U.S. government or governments throughout the world. Reparations were in the American air. Indeed, between 1993 and 2005, in three separate instances of injustice against blacks, compensation was pursued through different governing bodies to some measure of success. The first instance occurred in 1994, when the Florida legislature decided to investigate atrocities committed against blacks during the 1923 Rosewood White Riot which claimed the lives of an estimated 29 blacks and two whites. Florida has an abysmal record of mass white terror directed toward blacks, dating at least from 1913. At that time, many white Floridians were incensed by rumors that European women had fraternized with black soldiers during their World War I tours of duty. Between 1913 and 1917, at least 29 lynchings, none of which were prosecuted, were recorded in the state. The greatest number of murders was recorded on Election Day 1920, described by historian Paul Ortiz as the single bloodiest day in modern American political history. One black town, Okoe, was burned to the ground 
after two black men, Mose Norman and Jewel Perry, attempted to vote. Walter White, then assistant secretary of the NAACP, estimated that in Okoe alone, at least 50 blacks were murdered. Thereafter, Okoe became a whites-only town. More than 70 years afterward, the Florida legislature commissioned its study to determine the causes of the white massacre in Rosewood. White anger had been ignited when false stories circulated alleging that a white woman had been beaten and raped by a black man. An organized white mob lynched a local black man, Sam Carter, and then proceeded to hunt down other blacks and burn nearly every house in the community. State and local authorities were aware of the carnage, but made no arrests. Many disturbing incidents had occurred in nearby Gainesville immediately before the Rosewood riot. In 1922, the editor of the Gainesville Daily Sun had boasted in the pages of his own paper of his membership in the Ku Klux Klan. Furthermore, 100 members of the Klan had marched in Gainesville, 50 miles from Rosewood, the day before the riot. Local police failed in their duty to protect the Rosewood residents, and they did not investigate the murders. Special Master Richard Hickson, the man who presided over the Florida legislative proceedings, wrote in the culminating report, It is clear that government officials were responsible for some of the damages sustained by the claimants. After initially recommending $7 million, the legislative body ultimately approved an award of $2.1 million, $150,000 to each person who could document their residence in the community in 1923, and a separate fund totaling $500,000 for individuals who would receive reparations if they could prove by application that they had an ancestor who had lived in Rosewood in 1923. Nine individuals received payments under the implementation of this law. The claims bill also included a provision for a scholarship fund for the families and direct descendants of Rosewood's residents to attend Florida's public colleges or post-secondary vocational technical schools. Given the extreme level of terror in Florida early in the 20th century, it is striking that the Rosewood reparations are the only instance of compensation provided to victims of white terror by the state. In Chapter 10, we describe numerous mass killings and the barbarity directed against black Americans in the first half of the 20th century. The evidence notwithstanding, to the best of our knowledge, Florida is the only state to make any compensatory payments to the victims of white riots. The second instance in which blacks were the recipients of some measure of reparative justice, a class action lawsuit mounted on behalf of black American farmers against the U.S. Department of Agriculture, was a boost to reparations proponents. The case, Pigford v. Glickman, named for Timothy Pigford, a black North Carolina farmer, and Daniel Robert Glickman, then Secretary of the Department of Agriculture, was settled in the plaintiff's favor for $1.25 billion in 1999. But ten years later, no payouts had been made. New litigation grew out of Pigford One, a class action lawsuit filed in 1997 in which 400 African-American farmers alleged the Department of Agriculture had systematically discriminated against them from 1983 to 1997. The farmers made three charges. 
The federal agency had procrastinated in processing their loan applications, prevented them from having access to farm loans and benefits programs, and ignored or failed to investigate their claims of discrimination. The result of the second class action lawsuit, Pickford II, was a larger number of eligible claimants. Affected farmers finally began to receive awards in 2013. Of the 22,505 applicants, 13,348 were approved and received cash or credit up to $50,000. Less than 1% pursued larger amounts. The largest award, $13 million, was paid to the now-defunct farm collective, New Communities, about a dozen farm families in the southwestern counties of Georgia. Eligible black agricultural producers who joined the Pigford lawsuit had been given two options when filing their claims. Receive a one-time payment of $50,000 or present extensive documentation to support a larger claim. Missing records, some of which may have been lost or destroyed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture itself, made it impossible for many of the farmers to file for claims larger than the one-time fixed payment. For adherents tracking these developments, the constellation of advocates uniting around reparations for African Americans in the late 1990s, back-to-back -back redress successes, and the moral certainty of their cause signified eventual victory. Unlike the apprehension that had stymied the efforts of Callie House and others lobbying on behalf of ex-slaves 100 years earlier, there seemed to be a growing consensus that the timing was right and national sentiments had changed. In 1997, the Oklahoma legislature authorized funding for the Oklahoma Commission to study the Tulsa riot of 1921 to conduct research on the White Rebellion and make recommendations. The commission found that the Tulsa riot of 1921 occurred during the epic of the most deadly wave of white urban anti-black violence in the nation's history. Over a two-day period, a white mob torched more than 1,200 black homes, a hospital, a junior high school, several churches, and 191 businesses in Tulsa's Greenwood community, burning them to the ground. Utilizing six World War I-issue airplanes, whites even pursued blacks from the air with rifles and dropped firebombs on them as they attempted to escape. Estimates indicate that as many as 300 African Americans were murdered. The late John Hope Franklin, celebrated historian and author, grew up in Oklahoma. His father, Buck Charles Colbert Franklin, an attorney, worked in Tulsa's Greenwood Business District and was in the city when the massacre occurred. The younger Franklin became a consultant to the commission and eventually a plaintiff in a class action lawsuit seeking reparations. In 1997, the same year the Tulsa Riot Commission was formed, President Bill Clinton issued a call for colleges and universities to participate in his National Conversation on Race Initiative. John Hope Franklin was appointed to chair the conversation. Bethune-Cookman College participated by recruiting six whites and six blacks from Daytona, Florida and the surrounding counties to participate in a mock trial and judge the merits of black Americans' reparations claims. The verdict was unanimous in favor of the plaintiffs, 
and included a recommendation that the federal government develop a program to provide restitution to African Americans. When the Oklahoma Commission to Study the Tulsa Riot of 1921 issued its report three years later, it recommended the 125 survivors be paid reparations. The Commission's restorative justice plan also specified solutions such as a scholarship fund for families affected by the riot, an economic development zone in the Greenwood neighborhood where the violence was greatest, and resources for reburial of any human remains that might be found in the unmarked graves of victims. Although the Tulsa riot claimed the lives of ten times more black residents than the Rosewood white riot and destroyed significantly more property, the Oklahoma legislature enacted no mandate and made no payments. Undeterred, in 2000, a group of accomplished litigators and activist scholars founded the Reparations Coordinating Committee and developed a class action suit on behalf of the plaintiffs in the 1921 Tulsa massacre. Significantly, their efforts were directed exclusively at the 125 extant survivors still living in 2003, not their descendants. Co-chaired by Charles Ogletree and Ajua Ayatoro, the Reparations Coordinating Committee's legal efforts generated a great deal of attention but, ultimately, were not successful. Later, committee members attempted to develop a general class action suit for reparations on behalf of all African Americans, but it too fell short. It is reasonable to assume that all remaining survivors will die before any compensation ever is delivered. After the failed attempt to achieve compensation for the survivors of the Tulsa riot, the reparations battleground shifted to Wilmington, North Carolina, and the white insurrection that took place in 1898. The effectiveness of the black male vote in North Carolina, combined with the freedmen's support of the fusion movement, was an affront to white supremacy. Fusion had brought predominantly white farmers in the populist movement into a coalition with the Republican Party, increasingly influenced by black voters. Fusion candidates triumphed in the state's 1894 elections, and in 1896, North Carolina elected its first Republican governor since Reconstruction, Daniel L. Russell, breaking the Democratic Party's two-decade hold on the position. Meticulously planned and systematically encouraged by white supremacist agitation, the goal of the Wilmington Massacre was the overthrow of the city's elected Republican municipal administration. More than 2,000 white Democratic Party supporters determined to reclaim North Carolina as a white man state and white men will rule it, forcibly removed lawfully elected black and white officials from government buildings, attacked blacks across the city, and vandalized and burned dozens of black homes and businesses, including the newspaper owned by brothers Alexander and Frank Manley, the Daily Record. Black casualty estimates ranged from 60 to 300. Many blacks left the city permanently. The plotters were drawn from the best class of the city's white people, including, most visibly, Alfred M. Waddell, a former Confederate Army colonel who installed himself as mayor after the massacre. Waddell, a four-time Democratic incumbent congressman, had lost his seat to Daniel Russell in 1878. Russell, a rare member of the planter class, 
who had been a staunch unionist, had made the even more uncharacteristic decision to align himself with the Republican Party after the Civil War. Charles Brantley Aycock became a revered education reformer when he was elected North Carolina's 50th governor in 1900, but his white supremacist credentials were unassailable. His inflammatory anti-black rhetoric on the stump in the run-up to the 1898 election played an important role in fomenting the white assault in Wilmington. After learning that the coup was in motion, Aycock, then living in Goldsboro, made his way to the train station, prepared to fight alongside the white rioters. He canceled his plans and remained in Goldsboro when a telegram reached him and the other 500 armed white men who were ready to board the train to Wilmington, informing them that the whites were satisfactorily in control. Good government in the state and peace anywhere were within the Democrats' grasp, Aycock said in 1900 when he accepted his party's unanimous nomination for governor. But first, we must disenfranchise the Negro. Julian Carr, an influential tobacco, textile, and banking industrialist born into a slave-owning family, donated 62 acres of land that enabled Trinity College to move to Durham, North Carolina in 1892. Carr's contribution ensured the college's survival and prosperity. It would become Duke University. At the same time, Carr was involved deeply with North Carolina's anti-fusion Democratic Party. He supported Josephus Daniels in acquiring the Raleigh newspaper, The News and Observer, which served as a major organ of the violent white supremacy campaign. In December 1898, a month after the Wilmington Massacre, Carr championed the massacre as a grand and glorious event. In the aftermath of the butchery in Wilmington, the stage was set for the white supremacists to gain full control of North Carolina's political apparatus. Carr fervently urged white male voters to go to the polls on August 2, 1900, to adopt two amendments, the Grandfather Clause and a poll tax, that effectively would disenfranchise black voters. It is not my desire to try and stampede your fears by crying, nigger. For my part, I would gladly rejoice to strike the word nigger from the vocabulary of North Carolina politics. But the nigger and the providence of God is here, and we believe here to stay. And I am not ashamed to say in this presence that I have been a friend of the Negro in the Negro's place. From my very makeup, I am for the underdog in the fight, so that whenever and wherever the Negro has behaved himself and kept himself in his place, my disposition has been to lend him a helping hand. And yet, after I have said all this, I stand here and declare that as a citizen worthy to enjoy the rights of the franchise, the Negro is a failure. Ultimately, the 1898 Wilmington Race Riot Commission recommended in 2006 that reparations be paid to the descendants of the victims. To this day, the North Carolina legislature has refused to do so. The third reparations success story, or at least partial success story, at the turn of the latest century, involved the 1959 decision of the local school board in Prince Edward County, Virginia, 
to shut down its school system rather than comply with the Brown v. Board of Education desegregation decision. The county's closure of its schools represented one of the most extreme examples of massive resistance to the Supreme Court's injunction that the racially dual system of education must come to an end. While the state of Virginia and Prince Edward County provided vouchers and tax credits to enable white students to attend newly formed all-white academies, no resources were provided for black students to continue their schooling. The school board's refusal to reopen the public schools until 1964 effectively denied many black students the opportunity to further their education. The chains that were placed on the district's school doors to exclude black students from access to education reminded some of the chains that were placed directly on their ancestors during slavery. Not until 2005, 46 years after the school closings, did the state of Virginia undertake any effort to atone for the costs of these actions in Prince Edward County? Combining private donations from billionaire John Kluge with state funds, scholarships were offered to the victims of the shuttered school system to enable them to pursue higher education at this much later date. No compensation was offered for past years of lost schooling, nor was compensation offered to offset the impact of the lost schooling on the affected students' long-term prospects for employment and earnings. Because the victims who still were living were overwhelmingly persons in their 50s and 60s at the time of Virginia's reparations plan, only a few were in a position, so deep in adulthood, to take full advantage of a funded opportunity for college and university education. Despite the widely divergent outcomes of the Rosewood, Pigford, Tulsa, Wilmington, and Prince Edward County claims. Excitement surrounded these efforts. They encouraged advocates to speak out about the debt America owed to African Americans. Through diligent research, scholars seeking to broaden the targets of the restitution campaign unearthed and published the names of a dozen present-day corporations that had profited from the Atlantic slave trade in the past. In their view, all slavery-linked profits were unjust enrichment. The investment bank Lehman Brothers and textile producer West Point Stevens, whose fortunes had been built on slave-grown cotton, were called to account, as were the Mobile and Girard Railroad, part of present-day Norfolk Southern Railroad, and the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac Railroad, now CSX, which routinely had rented human chattel by the year to lay rail lines. Dozens of newspaper companies still in circulation found it before and during the antebellum era. Knight Ritter, E.W. Scripps, and Gannett, owner of USA Today among them, had profited from the sale of advertisements promising rewards for the capture and return of runaway slaves, slave auction notices, and recruitment circulars for crews to operate slave ships. Researchers identified dozens of merchants, like the Brooks Brothers clothier, which had expanded its operations to capitalize on lucrative Southern American and Caribbean plantation markets, the very markets that supplied them with the raw cotton and other slave-made goods the company used to manufacture the clothing it offered to its growing customer base. Another potential set of targets emerged in 2000. Corporations that had insured slave owners against the loss of their human chattel. 
Slaves were human property who could be bought, sold, traded, or inherited. The California legislature requested its Department of Insurance make inquiries about ill-gotten profits from slavery, which profits, in part, capitalized insurers whose successors remain in existence today. A number of the state's insurance corporations affirmed their abhorrence for the practice of slavery and expressed profound regrets that their predecessor was associated in any way with that contemptible practice, but none offered to pay reparations. The American International Group predecessor, United States Life Insurance Company, New York, was founded in 1850. One of the results of its self-study was the discovery of an article published in an unnamed periodical in which a policy valued at $550 was written on human property listed only as Charles. Specifically, conditions of death that were excluded from coverage included the following. Death to said slave by means of any invasion, insurrection, riot, civil commotion, or of any military or usurped power, or in case the slave shall die by his own hand, or in consequence of a duel, or by the hands of justice, this policy shall be void, null, and of no effect. During the period when reparations advocates were developing restitution strategies based on historical events, few opponents were engaged in the public debate until the emergence in January 2001 of a singularly energized anti-reparations pundit. David Horowitz placed an incendiary advertisement in college newspapers across the country. Ten reasons why reparations for blacks is a bad idea for blacks and racist, too. The ads effectively introduced the subject of reparations to a new generation of Americans and led many to review or acquaint themselves with the country's involvement with the Atlantic slave trade. Horowitz's position held that only those enslaved and their immediate descendants were due recompense, since all of those individuals were presumed dead. For Horowitz, the matter was closed. Horowitz's platform possibly had the unintended consequence of setting off a series of heated public and private rebuttals, effectively rekindling the reparations conversation. The United Nations hosted the World Conference Against Racism in Durban, South Africa, from August 31st to September 8th, 2001, and declared it would seek compensation for slavery as a goal. Sensing that the time had come to take a dramatic public stand, Reverend Jesse Jackson insisted it was important for companies that had been founded before or during the antebellum period to reveal the extent of their involvement in the Atlantic slave trade and consider making amends. All those years of work without wages are the foundation of American wealth, Jackson said. America must acknowledge its roots in the slavery empire, apologize for it, and work on some plan to compensate. An apology is in order. But you must not only apologize with your lips. Repent, repair, and remedy go together. But how would an estimate of those profits be determined? Using arguments based in part on historical documents she received from the defendants, Dadria Farmer-Pellman began preparation for a lawsuit against Fleet Boston Financial formerly Providence Bank, Aetna, and New York Life Insurance Company. 
One of the major items Farmer Paleman used to document her case was a 1906 history of the New York Life Insurance Company, which indicated that 339 of the first 1,000 policies written by the firm insured slaveholders against losses of their human property. Under the auspices of its subsidiary, Nautilus, New York Life Insurance Company also insured the lives of at least 485 enslaved people for their owners during a two-year period in the 1840s. Farmer Pellman's goal was to force the defendants to provide an accounting, constructive trust, restitution, disgorgement, and compensatory and punitive damages arising out of their past and continued wrongful conduct. But momentum, building for the first eight months of 2001, shut down after 9-11, as the nation grieved and attempted to make sense of the events of the day. Farmer Pellman's research brought to light a rich potential source for reparations, but the case failed. Another five years passed before the reparations movement had any prominence again in the news. Between 2007 and 2008, at least six state legislatures issued apologies for slavery or for slavery and Jim Crow, signaling what many believed to be critical encouraging first steps toward reparations. State legislatures in Virginia, Maryland, North Carolina, and Alabama all issued apologies in 2007, while those in New Jersey and Florida made apologies in 2008 and expressed profound regret for their state's role in slavery. When the North Carolina Senate passed its measure denouncing slavery and legal segregation in 2007, State Senator Bill Purcell observed that his grandfather was a slave owner, something that had always troubled him. The resolution that Purcell just two generations removed from slavery times voted for in North Carolina said in part, the General Assembly issues its apology for the practice of slavery in North Carolina and expresses a profound contrition for the official acts that sanctioned and perpetuated the denial of basic human rights and dignity to fellow humans. Then in June 2009, the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate unanimously passed an apology for slavery. Although these formal apologies garnered headlines, and brought the country's unequal history to the attention of many Americans, they were frequently, some would say intentionally, worded in such a way as to preempt actual compensation to the descendants of the enslaved. The reparations conversation vanished from the headlines, not to return visibly to national attention until June 2014, when journalist and public intellectual ta Coates published a major article in The Atlantic titled, The Case for Reparations. The dramatic response to Coates' article reawakened discussion and debate over black reparations in America. The major compensation strategies pursued over the previous 25 years typically have been piecemeal and directed at the courts for remedy. But the courts have not been responsive to class action suits on behalf of all black Americans for historical injustice, making a large-scale program of reparations via the judicial route unlikely. Not only is there a barrier to suits brought against the government by sovereign immunity, but while private corporations' exploitation of slave labor was immoral, it was also legal under national laws. 
An additional disadvantage of approaches like that, put forth by Farmer Paleman, is the absence of a rationale for reparations driven by the unjust practices of the Jim Crow era. No consideration is given to the harms of legal segregation to remaining living victims or younger generations who also bear the cumulative intergenerational burden of that history. Claims for the harms of Jim Crow would be more consistent with the enactment of the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, the enabling legislation that mandated reparations for Japanese Americans who had been subjected to incarceration during World War II. This was accomplished by congressional, not judicial, action. We detail a litany of the wrongs committed against African Americans under legal segregation in chapters 10 and 11. Furthermore, judicial success that is not greeted with broad popular support, a level of popular support needed to propel Congress to adopt black reparations, will result in massive resistance comparable to the response to the Brown v. Board decision in 1954. Therefore, we conclude that a large-scale program of redress will require congressional action to ensure the provision of coverage and amounts of monies that meet the magnitude of the just claim. While some anticipated that Barack Obama's election might reignite the debate, he short-circuited the conversation before his presidency began. When the NAACP interviewed him in August 2008, Obama said, I have a lot of respect for Congressman John Conyers, and I'm glad that the NAACP gave him its highest honor this year. While I know where his heart is at, I fear that reparations would be an excuse for some to say, we've paid our debt, and to avoid the much harder work of enforcing our anti-discrimination laws in employment and housing the much harder work of making sure that our schools are not separate but unequal, the much harder work of lifting 37 million Americans of all races out of poverty. These challenges will not go away with reparations. So, while I applaud and agree with the underlying sentiment of recognizing the continued legacy of slavery, I would prefer to focus on the issues that will directly address these problems and building a consensus to do just that. As a candidate, not only did Obama have a narrow view of the potential of black reparations, he also assumed that the case for reparations is based exclusively on the grounds of the enslavement of black people in the United States. His comments completely ignored the case in the decades following slavery, nearly 100 years of Jim Crow, and ongoing present-day discrimination. Of course, neither has his successor, Donald Trump, been an enthusiast for black reparations. That Trump, the most overtly white supremacist president since Woodrow Wilson, does not support a program of compensatory action for the nation's injustices toward black Americans is wholly unsurprising. He made his sentiments quite clear when he reacted to protesters holding Black Lives Matter signs at a 2015 press conference in South Carolina charging that blacks complaining about conditions in the United States should go back to Africa. There's no such thing as racism anymore. We've had a black president, so it's not a question anymore. Are they saying black lives should matter more than white lives or Asian lives? If black lives matter, then go back to Africa. We'll see how much they matter there. Certainly Trump's assertion that there's no such thing as racism anymore is discredited by his own presidential campaign 
and the outlook and actions of his most ardent supporters. Unexpectedly, the 2018 congressional midterm elections were followed by an even greater surge of interest in black reparations. A movement blossomed in early 2019 on electric network platforms under the label hashtag ADOS, an acronym for American Descendants of Slavery. This digital campaign asserts that black American descendants of persons enslaved in the United States have a unique and exceptional claim on the nation's government for justice. Coincident with the emergence of hashtag ADOS, the 2020 major party candidates for the presidency engaged seriously with the reparations project for the first time since the Reconstruction era. Marianne Williamson and Julian Castro were most explicit about their support during the early phase of the primary season. However, only Williamson was bold enough to make an explicit commitment to establishment of a fund and to designate an amount to undertake a black reparations program. Several Democratic candidates also indicated their support for H.R. 40. As noted, the bill establishes a congressional commission charged with documenting the long and cumulative trajectory of harms visited upon black Americans and designing remedies for redress that can be translated into enabling legislation for a reparations program. Finally, hearings on H.R. 40 were held before the House Judiciary Committee's Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights, and Civil Liberties, chaired by Steve Cohen, Democrat, Tennessee, on June 19, 2019, a signal moment because the bill had never before reached that stage of congressional consideration. Of course, any sitting president at his or her own discretion can appoint a national commission with a similar charge without waiting for congressional approval. The effectiveness of the commission necessarily is contingent on the convictions and expertise of the commissioners and on the designation of an appropriate deadline for completion of their report, preferably no longer than 18 months. For black reparations to become a reality, a dramatic change in who serves as the nation's elected officials must take place, both in Congress and in the White House. New national leadership must be committed fully to black reparations. Making this happen requires, in turn, an inspired national movement dedicated to the fulfillment of the goal of racial justice. 2. Myths of Racial Equality We are basically talking about an economic system that is shot through with discrimination. Bernard E. Anderson, former Assistant Secretary of Labor. And I want to... Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to check out other artists that will be performing at the Berkeley Anywhere concert series. Thank you again and enjoy. Thank you. 
message. E. Anderson, former Assistant Secretary of Labor. And I want to raise another point about this business about reparations. Palliatives like affirmative action will never close the economic gap. This gap is structural. It's not even about salary. Because the black community has been denied so much in wealth building tools. Blacks, even middle class blacks, have no paper assets to speak of. They may be salaried, but they're only a few months away from poverty if they should lose those jobs because they have handed, they've had nothing to hand down from generation to generation because of the ravages of discrimination and segregation, which were based in law until recently. And so that the black community economically is very vulnerable. And we have this enormous gap. Now, this gap was opened because of the deeds of the United States government, which has a responsibility to make that right. And that has to be a part of our demand. But we have an America that is urging other countries to face up to their past wrongful deeds, while America is unwilling to even acknowledge its past wrongful deed. What crime against humanity could be more horrible than slavery, or lynching, or restrictive covenants, or mortgage discrimination, or job discrimination, or housing discrimination, or all of the varied forms of discrimination that have held people down. Randall Robinson, interview with Democracy Now! At the end of the introduction, we identified three tiers of injustice that form the basis for black reparations in the United States. Slavery, Jim Crow, and ongoing racial inequality and racism. Most Americans agree that both slavery and legal apartheid were horrific moral outrages, but there are alarmingly large numbers of Americans, both white and black, who do not believe that racial inequality and discrimination continue to exist. For them, blacks are fully engaged in every aspect of American life. For them, the entire third tier of the platform for reparations is a figment of the beholder's imaginations. If blacks are not drowning, they ask, why throw them a special lifeline? For example, a Pew Research Center survey conducted in 2016 reveals the prevalence of these mistaken beliefs. Researchers found that large proportions of both whites and blacks affirm there is no lingering racial financial disparity. An astonishing 38% of blacks contended that blacks are at least as well off or better off financially than whites. Among whites, the proportion sharing that opinion was 42%. In addition, 38% of white respondents believed the nation has already made all the policy changes needed to give blacks equal rights with whites. A majority of white respondents thought blacks are treated as fairly as whites in the courts. More than 70% of whites thought that blacks are treated similarly to whites when applying for a loan or mortgage, in the workplace, in restaurants, and when voting in elections. 
Less than 40% of blacks shared the same views on their treatment in the courts, in seeking a loan or mortgage, or in the workplace. But a majority of blacks shared the same views as most whites on their treatment in restaurants, 51%, and in the voting process, 57%. Half of whites believed blacks are treated as fairly as whites in their encounters with the police, in contrast with a mere 16% of blacks. More than 60% of whites did not believe racial discrimination continues to be an important barrier to blacks getting ahead. 47% of whites rejected the notion that lower quality schools constituted an obstacle for blacks, and 55% of whites rejected the idea that a lack of jobs prevents blacks from getting ahead. In all three of these cases, at least 66% of black respondents surveyed thought these factors significantly inhibit black achievement. However, with respect to factors associated with self-defeating deficiencies in the black community as important reasons for blacks not getting ahead, white and black respondents held similar views. A striking 43% of blacks said a lack of motivation to work hard is an important factor producing black-white inequality in contrast with only 30% of whites. Even higher proportions of both groups attributed any ongoing black-white gaps to family instability, 57% of blacks and 55% of whites, and to the lack of good role models, 51% of blacks and 52% of whites. So while there were sharp differences in black and white perceptions of the role of societal factors in perpetuating racial economic inequality, there was a sharp convergence on the role of alleged cultural behavioral factors. A significant proportion of blacks fought the view alleging that black dysfunction helps explain racial inequality in the United States. Moreover, to the extent that the respondents to the Pew survey saw racism as having any ongoing impact, more of them, both white, 70%, and black, a plurality of 48%, emphasized individual prejudice as the problem, rather than the system of laws and institutions. In From Here to Equality, we intend to convince you that America has not transcended racism, nor has the passage of the Civil Rights Act resulted in economic equality for African Americans, nor did the election of a black man as president signify the attainment of racial equality. Moreover, the incidence of poverty, unemployment, over-incarceration, wealth disparities at all levels of income and inferior levels of well-being among blacks cannot be explained by defective black behaviors. There is something profoundly wrong with the way we think about how race and racism operate in American society. In this chapter, we will drill down on three key errors that must be corrected. These errors are embodied in the following three erroneous beliefs. One, racism and discrimination no longer exist in the United States. Two, there are no significant economic disparities between blacks and whites. And three, to the extent that there are any residual racial economic disparities, they must be due to dysfunctional behavior on the part of blacks. We rely heavily on statistical findings rather than anecdotes, to develop a clear portrait of the operation of race and racism in contemporary America. While there are always individuals 
some of whom each of us may recognize, at least from afar, who are exceptions to the general pattern. The character of a society is determined most accurately by the typical or average experience of its members. Economists with a wide range of ideological perspectives also have embraced racial cultural determinism, the idea that race-linked behaviors and attitudes explain racial inequality in the United States. This dangerous line of thinking alleges the black-white economic gap is due not to an acutely unequal playing field, but to blacks' deficient skills, training, and motivation. Its defenders allege that group-based inequality ultimately can be eliminated if black Americans exercise enough willpower and do the right thing. According to this view, insofar as black Americans possess the capacity to improve their status by altering their own behavior, the nation can be absolved of responsibility. Ostensibly, once blacks as a group take these self-correcting actions, all disparities simply will fall away. say, why do we care about lines so much? Why do we care about slope of a line? You're spending so much time on it. Why do we care? Well, the truth is, is that even though it might not seem like lines are very in interesting, and it turns out that advanced math is actually built upon what we learned today. The whole science of calculus could not be invented without understanding what you are going to learn today. And I do mean that literally. If you don't understand this, which by the way, it's very simple to understand, then it's impossible to build on more advanced math that we use for th things like sending, sending probes to planets or building you know, computers or anything like that. 
So today we're going to learn about this thing we call a line. A line is just a straight line drawn through points, right? So this is a line, but one of the most important things about lines is what we call the slope of a line. So what do you think slope means? The slope is how steep the line is. Now this line is fairly steep. It's pointed up toward the sky, right? This line right here is actually even a little bit steeper. It's pointed up a little bit more vertical, but this line over here is very shallow. It's not nearly as steep. So if you replace the word slope with steepness, then this has a low slope or a very low value for the slope because as the line gets more and more flat, actually when it gets exactly flat, the slope is zero. Think about driving on a road in the middle of the plains. Very flat, no slope. So slope is zero. As you go up, uh, so the slope of this black line here, for instance, is zero, there's no slope at all. As the line slants up, the slope gets larger and larger and larger and larger. And eventually, if you go straight up and down, the slope actually is really not defined. It's where you could think of it as infinity slope, straight up. So flat stroke, slope, kind of infinity, uh, infinite value for a slope when it's going straight up and down and anywhere in between there. As you get more vertical, you get higher and higher slope. So what we want to do is be able to calculate a number, and that number is going to tell, tell us how steep this thing is, and we call that the slope. So the number one thing I want you to remember about slope is the following. We use the letter M to uh, write down the equation for the slope, and there are some historical reasons why we use the letter M, but you just need to get used to seeing the letter M. When you see M, it means slope. All right? And the slope is defined in words to be how much that line rises compared to, or in, in a ratio with, how much does that line run, meaning how much does it go to the right. So you can think of the rise being how much does the thing go up and the run being, let me make that a little bit more vertical, sorry about that. The rise is how much the line goes straight up and the run is how much the line goes sideways. So you can look at something like this. It seems to go up pretty good, and it doesn't go over quite as far. This one, it goes up even more in it, it compared to how much it goes over to the right. But this one right here, the rise is very, very low. It doesn't rise very much compared to how much it goes to the right. So when we talk about slope, we talk about rise over run. I want you to remember that. It's something that you would use for forever all the way through advanced math, rise over run. Rise divided by run. How much does the line go up, or the points, the two points on the line that you're talking about, how much do they go up compared to, or divided by, how far they go over to the right? That is the definition of slope. If you rise a lot, the thing must be very steep. So if you make the rise of the line very, very, very high, of course it's going to be a big slope, a big number. But if you make the rise very, very, very low, then the slope is smaller, okay? So let's, now this is words, and this is great, but let's write down the equation for the slope. It looks complex, but I promise you it is not. It is the following, y2 minus y1 divided by x2 minus x1. Now what are the ones and what are the twos? It takes two points to form a line, all right? So you're gonna label uh, one of these points on the line, any point you want, point number one, and you're gonna find another point on the line, point number two. One of them's point one and one of them's point two. All right, and you're going to calculate the slope using this equation. Now, forget about the numbers for a second. What you're doing when you subtract the y values of the points is you're figuring out how far the thing goes up because y is vertical. Remember, the y-axis is vertical. So when you subtract, you're finding out how far it goes up, rise. When you take the x values of two points, 
you're seeing how far it goes over to the right by subtracting the x values. That's the run. So when I said rise over run, this is exactly equal to the rise of that line, and this is the run of the two line, where we have two points, point number one and point number two. So let's go over here to this uh, line here. Now, we can choose any two points we want to to calculate the slope of that line, and I do mean that. You can pick whatever two points you want, and whatever two points you pick, you're going to get the same slope when you calculate it. So you're free to do what you want. If you use the equation correctly, then rise over run, you will get the same slope of the line because when you trace your finger on this line, the slope never changes. It's going up at the same rate. So if I use these two points to find the slope, I'll get some answer. And if I do these two points to get the slope, I'll get an answer. If I choose these two points, I will get uh, an answer for the slope. These two points, these two points, I can pick any two points I want, and I will always calculate the same slope because the slope on this line is always the same. It's always just cruising up, never changes, right? So let's pick two points here. And I'm going to kind of circle them here, but just remember that you can pick any two points you want. Let's choose this point down here for our first point, and let's choose uh, this point right here. Again, I'm just choosing these two, and I'm actually going to solve it a couple of different ways the first time. The equation for the slope, right, is rise over run. So I'm going to write that a few times, rise over run, right? Now, in order to, to understand the next part of it, it's y2 minus y1 over x2 minus x1. In order to understand this, I have to pick point 1 and point 2. Let's call this, uh, I guess let's call uh, this point 1 here. So this will be point 1. Point 1 is this one. 0 comma 1. x comma y 0 comma 1. Right? And then point 2, I'm going to call it 1 comma 3, 1 comma 3, x comma y, 1 comma 3. So this is point 1 uh, here, and that's point 2 there. Now, the numbers here is one and point 1 and point 2, point 1 and point 2. So what this basically means, this right here is uh, x1 comma y1, and this is x2 comma y2. So basically, this is point number 1, x and y. And this is point number two, x and y. And all I got to do is stick it in there. So what I have to do then is I say, I go and say, well, point number two, y value is three. Point number one's y value is one. So it's three minus one. Let me stop there for a second and say, what are we doing when we take three minus one? What we're doing is we're looking at this, these two points and we're, we're saying the y coordinate is 1 and the y coordinate is 3. When we take 3 minus 1, we are finding the rise. This is the rise. We are calculating this distance by subtracting the y values. That is just how far we've gone up between those two points, the rise, 3 minus 1. Okay, and then over here the run is again x2 minus x1, 1 minus 0. So notice that I did point number 2, 3, minus point number one, three minus one, y values, and then point number two, one, minus point number zero here. So what do I get? Three minus one is two, and one minus zero is one, and the answer is two, and so the slope is two. The slope is two. So I said for a minute, uh, a minute ago, that when you have a slope of zero, the line is flat. As you start to slant the line, the slope is bigger and bigger. This slope is not zero, it's not one, it's actually two which means it's a pretty good uh, uh, line slanted up toward the sky. 
as the slope gets larger and larger, 3, 4, 5, 10, 20, 30, then eventually it gets to be almost like a vertical line. And if you get all the way straight up and down, then it's like infinity slope because it's going up forever. <laughs> okay, it never really stops going up. So it's straight up and down. You can think of that as infinity slope. So here we have a slope of 2. Now, what does a slope of 2 mean? Right? What it means is that between these two points that we use, remember the slope is the rise over the run. And the number 2 is a number that can be written as 2 over 1, right? So it's a rise of 2 and a run of 1. So a rise of 2, a rise up of 2 goes from the starting point 2 units up, and a run of to, to the 1 to the right is 1 unit over. So rise of 2, run over. And I get to my next point. So the slope actually lets you predict what the next point is going to be on the line. You just take your slope and you go up that many units and over, running over to the right. So a positive uh, number of rise goes up and a positive run goes to the right because this is positive y values and these are positive x values. Rise, run, rise, run, rise, run. Notice that I know the slope is 2. So if I go up 2 and over 1, I land here. But from this point, if I also go up 2 and over 1, I land here. Up 2, over 1, up 2, over 1. And I can extend this line forever. Up 2, over 1, up 2, over 1. And that will continue in a stair-step fashion to trace out all the points on this line. Now, it's really important for you to know that I can choose any two points I want to find the slope. And also, I can do the subtraction in any order I want to. All right? So here, I chose this as point 2. And this is point 1. And I, you just have to subtract in the, in the same direction. 3 minus 1, subtracting the y's. 1 minus 0, subtracting the x's. But notice I did the subtraction in the same way. Point number 2 minus point number 1. Point number 2, point number 1. And I did the subtraction from this point, subtracting away this. right? But it's important for you to know that I can calculate the slope. I can flip the order of these points. And I can do, I can recalculate the slope, and I will get exactly the same answer. So I'm actually going to do that right down here. Let's change it, and let's pretend that this is actually now point 0.2, and this is point 0.1. I, I just looked at this, and I said, oh, that's point 0.2, and that's point 0.1. All right? So what you're going to do for the slope is you're still going to subtract the y values, and you're still going to subtract the x values, but now let's subtract the other way, 1 minus 3, and 0 minus 1. We just go the other way. So... 1 minus 3. Let's put it on the top. 1 minus 3 is the subtraction of the y values. 0 minus 1 is the subtraction for the x values. But notice we went the same direction of subtraction. 1 minus 3, 0 minus 1. What is 1 minus 3? This works out to negative 2. What is 2? 0. What is 0 minus 1? Negative 1. Negative 2 divided by negative 1 is actually a positive 2. The slope comes out to be the same thing. So we've established that I can pick two points and I calculate the slope. All I do is I subtract the y values, and then I divide that by the subtraction of the x values. But it doesn't matter what is point number one and what is point number two. I just did it both ways. I just subtracted, assuming this is point two, three minus one, and then one minus zero. I went the same direction of subtraction. Y values subtract my over x values I subtract, and I get this. But then I flip the points around, and I say one minus three and zero minus one y value subtract, x value subtract, and I calculate negative numbers, but since I divide them, it actually comes out to be the same exact slope. Now, I want to do one more thing before we move on to the next problem. I want to calculate two complete, I'm going to calculate the slope using totally different points. 
and see what we get. Let's pick this point up here. What is this point, by the way? It is 4, 9. So let's write down over here 4, 9. And let's not even use one of these down here. We could, but instead let's just do this one. 2, 5. So 2, 5. So these two points are also on the line, but they are not the two points that we use to find the slope. So we write down the slope. It's rise over run. So we have to subtract the y values, and we subtract the x values. It does not matter which is point one and which is point two. I could, I could totally, I, I could do whatever I want. Mm -hmm. All I know is I have to subtract these y values first. So I'm going to do 9 minus 5, subtracting the y values. And then I'm going to subtract the x values. But since I subtracted this way, I have to subtract the same way, 4 minus 2. All right? 9 minus 5 is 4. 4 minus 2 is 2. And you get an answer of 2. The slope is 2 using completely different numbers. I'm going to do one last calculation. y2, y1, x2, x1. In this example, we did 9 minus 5, 4 minus 2. So we kind of said... We kind of said this was point number two, and this was point number one. That's kind of what we did. Now let's go in reverse order. We're going to go five minus nine, flipping the points around, and then two minus four. See, all you have to do is you subtract the y values, and then you subtract the x values. You just have to do the subtraction in the same direction. What is nine minus five? That's actually negative four. What is two minus four? That's negative two. But when you divide these, you again get a positive two. So for this first problem, I'm trying to squeeze maximum learning out of this first problem. You pick two points on a line. You calculate between these points how much does it rise. You subtract the y values to do that. You get an answer down here. Then you subtract how far the thing moves over by subtracting the x values, the run. And you divide them, you get a number. But then I showed you that I can use the same two points and just do the subtraction in the other direction. By flipping around what is point 0.1 and point 0.2, I say 1 minus 3 and 0 minus 1, but you get the same slope. And then I said, let's pick two completely different points on the same line and find the slope. So we subtract the y values, 9 minus 5 and 4 minus 2. And you get 4 over 2, and you get the same thing. And then I said, let's flip it around and do the subtraction in the other way, 5 minus 9 and 2 minus 4. And I get exactly the same thing. So what is the moral of this story? The moral of the story is that you will always get the same value of the slope, no matter what point you use, and no matter which one is point one and which one is point two. So the way I want you to remember this slope equation is not to stress out about the numbers, not to stress out about which one's point one, which one's point two. What I want you to do is say, I need to find rise over run. I'm going to calculate how much this thing goes up by subtracting y values, and then I'm going to sub sub calculate how much it goes over by subtracting x values. And as long as I subtract the same direction, then I'm good. Right? That's what I want to do. That's what I want you to do. All right? So what am I going to do? I'm going to put a slope m is equal to 2. I guess I should have done that at the very beginning there. Uh, there. So that is the first problem. Now, let's look, see if you can kind of take a look at what this looks like. Notice you go up 2 over 1, up 2 over 1, up 2 over 1, up 2 over 1, because the slope is 2. Take a look at this one. Do you think this one is going to have a larger slope or a smaller slope? Well, this line is more steeply 
oriented, just kind of compare them. Put this one back in front, take a look at what that one looks like. This one is a little bit steeper, so it should have a slope larger than two because bigger numbers of slope means more and more steep. All right, so let's calculate this one. The slope of this guy is the rise over the run, right? The rise over the run. And what does that mean? It is uh, y2 minus y1, x2, x1. Now, what two points am I going to use here? Uh, I can choose any two points, literally any two points I want. Let's choose just, you know, I have my notes here and I, I chose something, but let's just choose this one and this one. They don't have to be close together. They can be far apart. What is this point? This point is 2, comma, 1. So this point is 2, comma, 1. And what's this one? It's 4, comma, 7. Okay. So you don't have to stress out about which one is point number two and which one's point number one. What instead I want you to do is say, I have to subtract the y values. I can go in whatever order I want. All right, so let's do seven minus one. These are the y values, seven minus one. Now I have to subtract the x values, but I went and then subtracted this direction. So I have to subtract the same direction here, four minus two. They have to be the same way. Seven minus one, four minus two. 7 minus 1 is 6, and 4 minus 2 is 2. 6 divided by 2 is 3. So the slope of this guy is 3. This is the correct answer. The slope of this guy is 3. Notice that 3 is larger than 2, and it's a little easier if I slide it in front here. Look at this guy being a slope of 2. Look at how that line is oriented. When the slope is of, of this line is steeper, physically more vertical, the slope is a larger number. Now, I could pick different points. I could pick, you know, this one and this one, or this one and this one, or this one, whatever. I can pick different points, and I'll always get the same value for the slope. But for this problem, let's do the slope calculation again, but subtracting in a different order. So instead of subtracting the way that we did in the previous problem, uh, 7 minus 1 and 4 minus 2, let's go the other way, subtracting this way, 1 minus 7, and then we have to do the same thing, 2 minus 4. Well, what is 1 minus 7? That's negative 6. What is 2 minus 4? That's negative 2. When I divide these, I still get a positive 3. So no matter what two points you pick, you'll always get the same correct slope. And even if you reverse the order of what is point 0.1 and point 0.2, you still get the same answer. So instead of stressing out about, oh, which one's point 0.2, which one's point 0.1, let me put the right thing in there. Don't worry about that. Look at what you're doing. You have to subtract the y values. You're free to choose any direction of subtraction you want. But then you have to subtract the x values, but you have to subtract it in the same direction. Divide the numbers, that is the slope. What does the slope physically mean? It is rise over run. And three, the slope of three can be thought of as three over one. So a rise of three and a run of one. A rise of three and a run of one. Rise of three, run of one. Rise of three, run of one. And so when you see that slope, three, four, five, six. You think of it as if a slope is six, that means you rise six units and only go over one to the right. That's why the line is steeper when the slope is steeper. All right. So let's move along to problem number three. We're going to do quite a bit of these, uh, quite a few of these, I should say, but they're not difficult. Now, first of all, is this going to be a slope when we calculate it? Is it going to be bigger or smaller than our last problem? Well, this is a very steep line. Three is a slope. This is a very shallow line. It must be much less than a slope of one. All right? So let's go calculate that. The slope is rise over run. So rise means we have to subtract the y values. 
in whatever order I want, and the run is subtracting the x values in whatever order I want. I can pick any two points I want on this line. Literally, I'm not following my notes. I'm just going to say, well, let me pick that one, and let's pick the one way down here. That, these are not the same points I chose in my notes. That's okay. What's this point? 2, comma, 2. So write them down, 2, comma, 2. It's helpful if you write them on top of each other. What's this one? 10, comma, 6. 10, comma, 6. All right? So I need to find the slope using these two points. All right? So don't worry about which one's point 1 and point 2. Just decide which way am I going to subtract. Well, I like 6 minus 2. I like going this way because it's easy to subtract that. So I'm going to do 6 minus 2, subtracting the y values. And then subtracting the x values, I have to go the same direction of subtraction, 10 minus 2. Right? What do I get? 6 minus 2 is 4, and 10 minus 2 is 8. And 4 eighths, when I simplify this, works out to 1 half. So the slope is 1 half. And so when I write this down, the slope is 1 half. And we just said that previously, for a very steep line, the slope was 3. This line is much more shallow. It must be less than 3. In fact, it's much less than 3. The slope is 1 half. Now, what does the slope of 1 half mean? Remember, it's rise over run. So that means you go up one unit of rise for every two units of run, run to the right. Up 1 over 2. 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 And you trace your line out. So the reason why a smaller slope is a shallow line is because I'm not rising very much compared to how much I'm running. I'm running a lot more to the right. Over here, I'm rising more than I'm running. So it's more steep. Here, I'm rising not as much here. Now let's do a little thought experiment. If I flip it around, we'll just do it really quickly here. What if I subtract it backwards? What if I don't do 6 minus 2? Let's go the other way, 2 minus 6 for the y values. But I have to go the same way for the x values, 2 minus 10. Well, this becomes a negative 4 on the top, and this becomes a negative 8 on the bottom. And when I say negative divided by negative, that's a positive, and I can simplify this to positive 1 half. So the slope comes out to be the same thing. It reinforces what I'm telling you. It doesn't matter what is point 0.1 and point 0.2. As long as you pick a direction of subtraction to find the rise and the run and do the same way of subtraction, you always get the same answer. And no matter what two points, I could pick these two points or these two points. or these, It's all going to be the same thing. The fraction will simplify down to a slope, in this case, of one-half. All right. Let's calculate the slope of this line. Now, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and try to get you to predict what do you think the slope of this thing will be before we actually calculate it. Remember, slope is rise over run. So it's how many times you go up and divided by or compared to how many times you go over, right? So if I pick any two points, I go up one, two units, and then over one, two, three. So the rise is two, and the run is three. Rise is two, run is three. Rise is two, run is three. So the slope, before doing anything, is two-thirds. The rise of two and a run of three. All right, so I don't want you to necessarily get the answer by just looking at a graph. We want to calculate it. But I also want you to show that you can check your work uh, by looking at the graph and finding what the slope is. All right, so let's calculate the slope. What is slope? It's just rise over run. I'm writing this down every time because I want you to remember this, right? So I'm writing y2 minus y1, x2 minus x1. But again, I don't really care about what is point 0.1 and what is point 0.2 necessarily. I don't really care. Let's pick two uh, points. Let's pick this one and let's pick one really far away. Let's pick that one. Although we can pick any two points we want. So point number one is 0, 3. 
0, 3. And point number 2 is way over here, 9, 9. All right, so when I do the subtraction, I'm allowed to subtract in whatever direction I want. 9 minus 3, got to subtract y's first. 9 minus 3, that would be the easy way to go. But let's do it the other way, just to show you that it doesn't matter. Let's go this way. Let's go 3 minus 9. And if we go that way, we must go this way here, 9 minus 0. I'm sorry, 0 minus 9. So subtract, subtract. The y values and the x values. 3 minus 9 is negative 6, and 0 minus 9 is negative 9. Now, any negative divided by negative is a positive number, and then I can simplify this fraction by dividing by 3. 6 divided by 3 is 2, and 9 divided by 3 is 3. So we get a slope of 2 thirds. And isn't that exactly what we said here? This means a rise of 2 and a run of 3. Rise of 2, run of 3. Rise of 2, run of 3. Rise of 2, run of 3. All right? So we subtracted kind of in the, you know, the opposite way because we got negative numbers on the top and the bottom. We subtracted 3 minus 9 and then 0 minus 9. Uh, yeah, 0 minus 9. We got a negative divided by a negative. If we were to go the other way, we would just go the other way. 9 minus 3, well, that's 6. Uh, and then uh, 9 minus 0 is 9. So we would get a positive 6 over a positive 9. We would get exactly the same answer for the slope. Just showing you one more time that it doesn't matter the direction that you calculate the slope. All right? Let's take a look at this one. Let's find the slope here. Now, this one's different, right? A little different. Because notice that all of our lines before have been slanted up and to the right. But this one is the first time where we have an opposite slope going the other way. What is that going to do? What is that going to change? Okay, you don't have to memorize anything. You don't have to really, like, try to remember it. You just calculate it. So let's calculate it the same way as before. It's rise over run. Same thing. You just subtract the y values, and then you subtract the x values in whatever order you want. Now, we have to pick two points. Pick any two points you want. I'm going to pick, let's say, this one right here and this one right here. 5, 4 is one of them. And then the other point here is 7, 2. Let me double check that. 5, 4 and 7, 2. All right. So the next thing I want to do is subtract these y values. And I can go any way I want. I like subtracting 4 minus 2. It's a little easier, so I'll do 4 minus 2. And then, because I'm subtracting this way, I have to go the other way on this, the same way on the x's. So 5 minus 7. Since I did 4 minus 2, I have to go 5 minus 7. All right? So what am I going to get on the top? 4 minus 2 is a 2. And 5 minus 7, that's actually a negative number. That's negative 2. So what do you get here? 2 divided by 2 is 1, but because it's positive divided by negative, it's actually negative 1, right? Negative. So notice that what happens is we got a negative slope. That's like, wow, that's weird. So one thing I didn't tell you yet, because I don't want to overload you, is that if you get a negative slope, it just means the line slants the other direction. So any line that slants up and to the right is going to give you a positive slope. Any line that slants to the up and to the left is going to give you a negative slope. So remember we said that two-thirds was a rise over a run. Whoops, if I can write rise correctly. Rise, run. And a positive rise goes up, and a positive run goes to the right. Up and to the right, because they're both positive. But here, a slope of negative 1 is like saying something like negative 1 over 1. You can write anything over 1. And we are saying that this is rise over run. 
So all you need to really remember is that a positive rise is up, but a negative rise is down, right? Because positive Y values are up. So if you ever have a negative rise, it means you're rising down. So what it means is I'm going down one and then over to the right one. Down one and to the right. Down one and to the right one. Down one and to the right one. So what you're doing is you're rising downward. Because it's negative, it forces you to rise in the opposite direction, which means rise down. Remember, negative and positives are opposite. If I have positive numbers rising up, a negative rise must rise me down. So I rise one down and over to the one right. One down, over to the one right. And that makes a line, line that slants like this. So the, the slope here is negative one. A negative one rise and a positive one run. So any negative number is going to give you a slope like this. Now, just because this one's a little different, let's calculate the slope one more time, but subtracting in the other way. We did 4 minus 2 before. Let's flip it around and go the other way and say 2 minus 4. But if I go subtract that way, I have to go 7 minus 5. Same direction. But this becomes a negative 2 on the top. And this becomes a positive 2 on the bottom. But notice what you get is exactly the same slope, negative 1. So even if the slope is this way or that way, positive or negative, it doesn't matter. Pick any two points on the line. It doesn't matter which is point 1 and point 2. You're always going to get a, the same exact answer for the slope, no matter what. Now, when you look at this one, what do you think? Is it going to be a positive or a negative slope? Well, it's not slanting this way. All lines that slant this way are negative. So we can immediately put a negative there because we know it's slanting left. It has to be negative. But notice that to get from this one, this point to go to this point, you have to go down two and over to the one to the right. Down two over one. Rise down two divided by one. Down two over one. Two over one is two. So this is a slope of negative two because it's down two over one. So we kind of predict ahead of time, let's calculate it. So point number one, I can just pick any two points I want. Let me just pick this one here and I'll pick the one right next door. So this is three comma zero. And this one here is two comma two. Right, so those are my two points that I'm gonna use. And then I'm gonna say that the rise y2 minus y1 divided by the run x2 minus x1. I can subtract in any order I want. So I'm going to pick 2 minus 0, because it looks easy. 2 minus 0, like this. Subtract 2 minus 0. But if I do that, I have to go 2 minus 3, because I have to subtract in the same direction. But 2 minus 0 is just 2, and 2 minus 3 actually works out to negative 1. Notice this is 2 over negative 1, so the slope is negative 2, exactly as we have predicted. So this means a rise. Now notice, you might say, oh, wait a minute, he's got the negative on the bottom here. So you see, let me show you something real quick. When you have a slope, a negative slope like this, a negative 2, you can think about it as negative 2 over positive 1, or you can think about it as 2 over negative 1. See, the negative sign can float to the bottom, or it can stay on the top. Because remember, a negative divided by a positive is a negative. A positive divided by a negative is also a negative. So it doesn't matter where the sign is. If you think of it as negative 2 over 1, then you're going to rise down 2 and over to the right to the 1. If you think of it like this, you're going to rise up to positive 2, but this negative run means you go to the left. So up 2, over to the left. Up 2, over to the left. So, But you notice how no matter how you think of it, about it, you get the same line. If I go up a rise of positive 2 and a negative run to the left, I get the same line as if I rise down 2 and positive over to the right. 
All right, now that's the answer to that question. I want to give you one more that's going to be kind of hand-drawn. I want to, I don't have a, a printout for this one, unfortunately, but I want to give you a situation when we have a horizontal line. So let's say this is three, and let's say we have two points, uh, a point right here and a point right here. Now this point is the point one comma three, and this point is the point uh, four comma three. And this forms a line that goes through these two points. Now it's completely horizontal. It's flat. So we know the slope should be zero for a flat line. Let's calculate it. Right, y2 minus y1, x2 minus x1. Doesn't matter which one's which. So I'm gonna subtract this way, three minus three, subtract the y values. But if I do that, I must do 4 minus 1. Whoops, 3 minus 3. It's y values 3 minus 3, and then 4 minus 1. What is 3 minus 3? 0. 4 minus 1 is 3. But 0 divided by anything is just 0. So the slope is 0. This is why the slope of any horizontal line is 0. I told you that in the first minute of this lesson. Horizontal line, there's no slope at all. Slope is 0. Why is that? It's because slope is rise over run, but there is no rise. The thing never goes up. There is no rise. And the way that shows up is the y coordinates of 3 are the same. So when you subtract them, there is no rise. And that's why the slope works out to be a 0. So I would like you to practice these yourself. The concept of slope, it seems confusing at first, but then if you just think of the big picture, a slope of 0 is flat. As the slope increases, it gets larger and larger until when you get totally vertical, it's kind of undefined, or you can think of the slope being infinity. And the deeper the line, the larger the slope. And if you ever have a line that goes in the opposite slant from this, then the slope means the same thing. It just turns out to be negative. So you have to think of negative rise, rise down and run, rise down and run. Or you can think of rising up and running the opposite direction to the left instead of to the right. But one of those, rise or run, has to go in the opposite direction. So I'd like you to calculate all of these yourself. We did six of them, actually seven with the last one. I do have one more lesson. I want to do six more with you because it's very important because when you get beyond algebra and get into calculus, the entire subject of calculus is actually built on this. And really, it's just subtraction and division. Subtract some numbers, divide. Subtract some numbers, divide. It looks complicated with the numbers, but I tried to tell you, stop worrying about the numbers. Don't worry about what's point one and point two. Worry about what you're doing. Subtract the y values. That's how much it goes up, rise. Subtract the x values. That's how much it goes over. That's run, rise, divided by run. That is a measure of how steep this line is. We call it the slope. So practice these. Follow me on to the next lesson. We'll continue building your skills. Thank <laughs> you.